Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a United States Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Major Lisa Becker, and this podcast topic is Doctrine and Practice at the National Training Center, focusing on the link between Army doctrine development and the training of doctrine at the National Training Center. We welcome Brigadier General Curtis Taylor, Commanding General of the National Training Center, or NTC, and Colonel Retired Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, CAD. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. In previous episodes of Breaking Doctrine, we talked about the birth of the National Training Center and how revolutionary it was to our Army's training. Today we will dive a little deeper into that history and why the NTC came into being, how doctrine was an important catalyst to getting the NTC off its feet. Then we'll examine the important link that still remains between doctrine and how the NTC trains our doctrine. There's no doubt that the 1973 Arab-Israeli War was critical in driving change in the United States Army. We saw the the lethality on the battlefield and realized that our Army capabilities fell short. But, arguably, a more important lesson learned was seeing that the Israelis had superior training and tactical doctrine to win outnumbered. Mr. Creed, we have attributed the creation of airland battle to lessons learned in the 1973 Arab-Israeli War but we really see this evolution of our doctrine being published already in the 1970s. Please tell us about the doctrine and the important connection of that doctrine published in the 1970s with the genesis of the NTC. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. So we have a, uh, an almost cult-like reverence for airland battle, particularly if you have a certain generation because of the way it came about and so forth. But like all our doctrine, it was pretty evolutionary, and it was built upon the previous intellectual foundations and lessons learned um, from earlier doctrine as well as those observations um, from the 73 Arab-Israeli War. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that we published 100-5 in, in 1976. General Depew was the trade commander at the time. Um, and they were really struggling with uh, a similar dynamic, particularly to the northern part of that Arab-Israeli War with the Israeli armies defending forward against forces that outnumber them seven or eight or ten to one, depending on um, where you were talking about on the battlefield. Um, And it really resonated with an army that was trying to recover a a focus on large-scale combat operations against the uh, reinvigorated Warsaw Pact threat, um, where you had this strategic imperative to defend forward. And so uh, a lot of the the senior leaders in our army uh, were were really trying to figure out how would we be able to win a fight like that. Uh, and then looking at ourselves, honestly, I think, uh, you know, we were, the army was kind of a new army at the time. It was an all-volunteer force. We were still trying to get our, our, our heads around that. Um, and one of the solutions for building this cohesive force is, to, I think, a reinvigorated training. But training to do what? And it was training to, to win outnumbered uh, or fight outnumbered and win. Um, so there were some interesting ideas in that 100-5 that was, the concept was called active defense. Uh, but it was this idea of mobility as compensating for um, the, the shortcomings of being outnumbered again, you know, 10 or 15 to 1, depending on where you might be on the battlefield. Um, and so General, General Depew said, hey, first and foremost, we're training in doctrine command. That's what we stood it up for. We, we need to really get our, our training right. Uh, and he had an interesting quotation that was in that 100-5, and, and I'll read it for everybody because uh, most of us haven't read it ourselves. And it's, since combat developments and doctrine are dynamic, and since weapon systems are constantly evolving, and since tactics and techniques are continually changing, training methods must change apace. Readiness for modern battle means training aimed at payoff now. In other words, it's a come-as-you-are f- uh, war, right? Uh, Constant readiness for early battles changes the presumptions previously governed the U.S. Army training, post-mobilization training, annual cycles, cadre development, and the like. In other words, the the operational environment at the time uh, 
smart people recognized that you couldn't continue to do things the same way you'd always been doing uh, in, a, in, in a world where the entire U.S. Army could be committed to a fight in a very short notice. There was no extra time to prepare. Um, so you're going to fight with the Army you had, as we had a famous Secretary uh, of Defense mention a few years back. Um, and so how do you make that Army as good as it could possibly be? Sir, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that. but Yeah, I think it's important to understand just what a watershed moment the Yom Kippur War was uh, for the United States Army. What we identified during that war, as you already highlighted up front, is one technology really matters. And, and subtle changes in our technology can drastically change the character of war. For example, the emergence of the anti-tank guided munition really caught the Israelis by surprise in the opening days of the war. But the other big lesson that came out of that fight was that training ultimately trumps technology. And the superior training of the Israeli army able, uh, enabled them to absorb those developments and those unforeseen uh, tactical conditions that they saw there uh, and to respond rapidly uh, and to restabilize uh, their uh, their defensive lines uh, and ultimately to counterattack rather successfully. So the lessons that our leaders came away from this is one, we have got to create an environment where we can replicate the modern threat out there in the world as that threat continues to evolve. So this is a really important subtle difference in the purpose of the training centers. Are we to serve as a sparring partner for the Army we have today, or are we to serve as, a, as best as we can an accurate replica replication of the threat we believe will be there on the first battle of the next war? I believe it's the latter, and I think that's really the vision that uh, General Paul Gorman and others had when they first created the NTC. So that was one of the big lessons that came out of the the Yom Kippur War. The second thing that came out, again, is training matters. And the skill and ability that you can develop at the, from the crew level all the way up to the brigade level where you're really combining the warfighting functions is absolutely critical. And that has to be trained and validated in a live environment against that un unforgiving crucible of modern warfare. And it was all about combined arms, right, sir? I mean, you talked about it, the lower tactical echelons, but it was the bounding block or the building blocks, you know, the combined arms of the company team through the battalion task force, um, what we call brigade combat teams now, but we called them brigade combat teams even before uh, that was a thing, right? And uh, I think that's another fundamental aspect of, of the U.S. approach based on those observations was the criticality of a combined arms approach. Uh, because you can, those complementary and reinforcing outcomes from a, a true well-trained combined arms force or, or a, an inferior force that fights effectively at a very high level in a arms, combined arms manner has enormous advantages in, in, in any context. And I, I think we saw that in Desert Storm. So the, the story and the message that I think is really important for us to understand about the NTC is we built this at as a result of the lessons learned of Yom Kippur, we opened our doors in 1981. We began battalion on battalion operations initially, and then by 1986, we had moved to brigade level, force on force operations, kind of the model that we have now. But then we began a program of 14 rotations a year, which is a pretty blistering op tempo. We put our observer controllers and our, our opposing force out in the field for 150, 200 days a year in order to to sustain the tempo that we needed to fully validate all of our heavy formations across the Army. So when we deployed 700,000 soldiers to the Kuwaiti Desert, or the Saudi Desert, in Operation Desert Shield, uh, in many ways we're ready. We've got a great sign in our museum at the National Training Center where we show that, that uh, famous left hook, and we show all the patches of those units as they executed that left hook. And then we list off to the right their last NTC rotation. And you can see for many of them, that they had just come from the deserts of the National Training Center out there to uh, the deserts of Saudi Arabia. And, and the message there is clear is the success of that fight was earned in the central corridor of the, of the NTC. And our ability to destroy the, the fourth largest army in the world in under 100 hours was a direct reflection of thousands and thousands of hours uh, and days and nights out in the field and out in the desert of the National Training Center. That's an important message that I think we need to continue to maintain as we adapt to a, a, a character of warfare that continues to change just as rapidly as it was after the Yom Kippur War. Yeah, gentlemen, I want to transition to today. 
um, I'm going to pull out a few words that you guys talked about or phrases, um, you know, talking about new doctrine, the need to win outnumbered, modern threat, the importance of training, new weapon systems and technology, the combined arms and how important that is. I think we're at a similar inflection point today that we were in the 1970s. So Mr. Creed, uh, as the team here at CAD was putting together the new doctrine that is the FM 3 published in 2022, was there a watershed event or events like the 1973 Arab-Israeli war that the team was able to apply in the new FM 3 Yeah, but it wasn't just one. It was a series. It was, I would almost say it was a series of trends. Um, and you can go back to, it wasn't a war, but it was a, a cyber war against Estonia in 2007, the invasion in, of Georgia in 2008 by the Russians, um, Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020 between Azerbaijan uh, and Armenia, uh, that war. Uh, obviously, the Ukraine, uh, the first Ukraine war in 2014-16, thereabouts, where we created a Russian new generation warfare study. Um, designed to get the Army focused on uh, an understanding of the operational environment. And while it focused on the Russians, it, it also uh, recognized that the Chinese uh, had similar capabilities, maybe even superior in some ways. And then, of course, the, the trends in Asia and the Western Pacific, uh, particularly with the Chinese encroachments in the South China Sea, and a recognition that there's a role for land forces in an environment like that. But we hadn't thought about those kinds of uh, campaigns for uh, for a very long time. Um, the other thing that those events made us think about was, uh, because there were some, some people in 2017 when we published the last 3.0 with a focus on large-scale combat operations who um, were kind of dubious that any of those types of fights would ever happen unless it was conducted, say, against Iran. In other words, anybody that was a nuclear-armed threat well, there would never be a conventional conflict against somebody that has nuclear weapons, which really took us aback in some ways because if you were of a certain age and you grew up in an army that had that culture, uh, it never occurred to you that somebody that had never lived through that would, would think that you, you couldn't conduct conventional operations against a nuclear armed threat. The Cold War would have turned out very differently if we had, you know, kind of adhered to that mentality. Um, so those events all together were informing our thinking. Um, and I, I think um, it, was a, it was almost like a, a stew of different factors. You know, we, we couldn't just dust off airland battle and then say we're good. It was a completely different world. The Army's positioned in different places. It's a different Army, not just from 40 years ago, but from 20 years ago. And, and so uh, you had to create doctrine that was relevant to a force that was very different, that had different types of experiences up to this point, and that was positioned different, fundamentally differently than it was in the Cold War. Uh, the bulk of our forces would have to conduct expeditionary uh, operations overseas at the long ends of strategic lines of communication, which is a concern. The other concern was our forces at our forward position have to conduct, would probably have to conduct defensive operations, particularly at the brigade uh, and lower level because they would be tend to spread out, be spread out doing training, uh, security force assistance and so forth with your allies. So it was not an either or, you know, we could just focus on defensive operations or offensive operations. We could just focus on the Warsaw Pact uh, or, or the North Koreans. It was, hey, we live in a multipolar world. Uh, we've got threats named in the national defense strategy and we needed doctrine that kind of accounted for all of the possibilities. I don't know what your thoughts were, sir, uh, but I know we talked as we were developing this, and, and, and you guys provided us a lot of feedback. Well, I think the, the foundational idea of FM30, as I, and I'm, I recognize I'm sitting next to the author here in many ways, um, but the foundational idea, as we saw it here at the National Training Center, was that the threat has evolved, and we now need a doctrine that deals with the networked nature of threat artillery and area denial systems. Once you once you premise that that is now a significant component of your of your enemy that you're training against, you have to think differently about how you fight. So the first example and the most relevant to the National Training Center is that BCTs, brigade combat teams, are no longer a self-contained element of combat power. 
the BCT must be an integral part of a larger division and core fight. And I'll tell you how that, how that affects the way we train at the NTC. So when I was a brigade commander in 2017, I uh, commanded a striker brigade. You know, I had uh, a, a fight at the NTC where I had to move from one end of the box to the other. And basically the division gave me a package of enablers, pointed me in a direction and said, brigade commander, move out. Your goal is to get to the other end of the box uh, by the end of the rotation. I had very little interaction with my higher headquarters. I had very little synchronization to do because we had for years regarded our brigade combat teams as essentially self-contained elements of combat power. Because we weren't training to fight against a networked threat that can create overwhelming artillery effects and overwhelming A2AD effects to deny maneuver to a formation even as capable as a USBCT. That has now changed. So we now recognize that the core and the division must work in, in tandem together to create windows of opportunity for the BCT to conduct its operations. So how does that train the way you operate at, change the way you operate at a, a BCT-centric training center like Fort Irwin, California? What we realized is we have to much more realistically replicate that division wrap because a BCT can no longer see itself as an independent fighting organization out there in the desert by itself. So I've got to create a very realistic wrap, and we're doing that in a number of ways. We're inviting BCTs to serve as a, you know, a side con, if you will. We're bringing division headquarters out to the National Training Center, uh, and we're, we're building up to provide that overall wrap uh, to create that realistic training environment of what a division, what a division will be looking, uh, looking like. What we also have created is what we call convergence windows that, that are in operation throughout the rotation. So they, there's a period of time where we tell the brigade commander that the Corps and the division will be setting conditions to enable his maneuver from this window to this window. And regardless of the conditions he has set at, inside his own organization, he must attack. There's a operational level imperative for him to conduct his maneuver during these very confined windows of opportunity because the shaping created by the division and the core is essential to enable him to maneuver. That's a real fundamental change in the way we fight at NTC. The second big thing uh, that has changed out there is we're replicating the transparent battlefield in much greater effect. So we, we all have seen in Ukraine and, and Nagorno-Korobakh that uh, drones are now an integral part of every operation. The vast majority of calls for fire by the Russian military and the Ukrainian military are both detected and adjusted by drones. We have replicated that at the NTC by giving our, our OP4 permanently on the ground there. Now, just this last rotation we completed uh, during the course of uh, nine days of force on force, uh, conducted over uh, 500 uh, observed uh, enemy positions, providing that intel to our fusion cell, and then over 300 uh, call for fire missions. So what we're trying to replicate is an environment where you can't be invisible. Now you can look unimportant, and we can talk about that more and, and how we hide in plain sight in an open desert, and how do we make sure we, we clearly camouflage and mask our high payoff targets, our most valuable uh, targets, so that we can protect them from op for targeting. So that's the, the, probably the second element that is changing. The third is we recognize, as we look at the way the Russians have been fighting in the Ukraine, they are an artillery-centric army. And over time, to be fair, we have moved away from large-scale artillery threats as part of our training environment. That's really difficult to replicate. And I've learned as two, uh, in two years as the commander of the National Training Center just how much infrastructure it takes to accurately replicate the artillery fight. So we have really been increasing that. We're bringing in more fire markers. We're bringing in better tools to accurately replicate the artillery fight. And then we're increasing the capacity and the accuracy of the OP4 so that we see the same kind of effects on U.S. forces in the box that we see with Ukrainian forces where the greatest threat you have is to be detected and to be targeted by uh, OP4 artillery. So I would say the transition to division-centric operations, uh, the emergence of the transparent battlefield, and the increase of the artillery threat uh, in the OP4 are the three main changes that we see here at the NTC as we try to adapt to this new doctrine and the new character of warfare. You know, one of the things that uh, we do when we do our roadshow, and I think we did it when we came and talked to your team, sir, but there's a mental shift, right, on the institutional side or the cultural side within the Army to get beyond this idea. 
or get accustomed to the idea that we would be fighting people who can do things to us that we've been doing to other people with impunity for 25 or 30 years. Um, but what they can do is different than what maybe we can do. Uh, and this, this importance of things like ideas like mast, accurate fires, uh, looking unimportant. Remember all those Murphy's Law of, of combat that used to kick around when we were lieutenants? Uh, and you used to laugh about them because uh, some of them were kind of funny, but then you realize that those things were created by people that had lived through similar types of fights or different in the real world. Uh, and, and so it was a, a humorous way of communicating the need to behave a certain way. So I don't know if you're seeing, and I think our host will take us there in a minute, but I imagine you've seen some pretty significant shifts in terms of unit behavior over the last couple of years, too. Well, absolutely. What, what we find, and the whole reason we built the NTC in the first place, is we know that the American soldier adapts very quickly. That's one of our great kind of intrinsic abilities of our Army that's been true going all the way back to Normandy, and you can walk it back much earlier than that. Once we are faced with the unforgiving reality of the environment that we're in, we adapt quickly. And so we're seeing that here. When we re accurately replicate the future fight, we're seeing some pretty creative adaptation. We're starting to see command posts that operate inside urban terrain in an effective way. There are ineffective ways to operate inside urban terrain, but we're starting to see command posts that are effective. We are seeing, and just observed in this last rotation, a brigade that left both its server stacks and its analytical capability of its vice in relative sanctuary while it deployed the main CP in a much more austere uh, and agile formation out uh, behind, uh, you know, just behind the, the front line of the battalion. They were successful because they had invested the effort in a reliable and stable upper TI that enabled them to communicate at essentially unlimited distances. So we're seeing that creativity. I saw a uh, brigade out here in the box recently that one of its battalions had created a fake command post fairly effectively. Uh, which uh, you, you cause the uh, op four to uh, to be confused about the location of the command post. We're seeing units that are doing creative things so that the, what from the air uh, their particular facility that's valuable to them, whether it's a command post or a, a uh, high pay, high value target, uh, they're massed in a way uh, that uh, makes them indistinguishable from other less valuable assets that are out there. Because what we recognize, again, it, it's a terrifying thing to shoot artillery at the American Army because our counterfire capability is fairly sophisticated. So the Op 4 has to choose very, very carefully what it's going to target. It has to be very deliberate about that because if it's not careful, it loses its artillery. We don't reconstitute the 11th ACR's artillery during the course of a normal battle period. So that's a pretty significant decision for that commander to fire at a target. So he needs to know it's worth it. He needs to know that it's important. And so the goal to operate in the, the goal to operating in a transparent battle space is that you have to find ways to make your formations indistinguishable. So the the key elements and the key nodes that provide a outsized level of capability to your organization are massed among all the the systems that are out there on the battlefield. Then the op four has no way to choose. Now in 2020, one ID headquarters came out to do some training at the NTC. And I know recently 3ID also came out. What is the appetite of these divisions to come out into what we think of as, you know, BCT training area? What are you seeing from your side? Well, that is definitely growing. There's a couple different models and different ways we do that uh, as based on uh, the training cycle of these different divisions. Uh, but the important thing I want to highlight is we will never compete with, nor do we see ourselves in direct competition with the incredibly robust scenario that is created in a warfighter exercise. That constructive scenario is detailed, it's robust, it's multi-division, quite often multi-core. It has a very highly high fidelity HICON, a very high fidelity XCON, and then it's got an OP4 that can operate up all the way up to the uh, OSC level, which is an important ability to replicate, you know, fights at that scale. We will not be able to replicate that at the National Training Center. What we can do is we can replicate a lot of things that are complementary to the skill sets that are developed during a warfighter. So we had the privilege with 3rd Infantry Division of training a brigade that had just come, or a division that had just come out of its own warfighter exercise. And so the, the metaphor, somewhat humorous metaphor we use during the uh, rotation is this is leg day. 
Uh, if you know anything about working out, you can do your upper body workouts, but every now and then you gotta, you gotta do leg day, which is you're working on a complementary set of muscles that are and muscle groups that are different from your, the focus of your workout. So this was leg day for the 3rd Infantry Division. And what we saw, there were a number of areas where uh, this was, we saw great growth for the division. First, operating over extended distances. When we first laid out the areas where the, where the two rocket battalions could operate in, uh, the first feedback we got uh, from the division is, hey, we need more room. In fact, we need to, we need to get off post. We need to, we, we need to really expand because realistically we would, we would operate over much greater distances until they tried to communicate. So they got the rockets out there and they tried to get the retrans set up. And then what they found is that the, the distances that they had become accustomed to in a warfighter scenario uh, now presented a real challenge because those are real distances where I've got to resupply those soldiers with water and I've got to make sure I can talk to them on FM and I've got to make sure I can get fuel out to them and I've got to resupply rockets. Once all those hard realities came in, what we saw is the PAAs started to shrink in a little bit more. Uh, additionally, uh, we saw, um, we, we presented this scenario where the division had to uh, support a beleaguered partner uh, in a close fight. We took the OP4 and had them fight each other, so we had a Denovian side and an Atropian side. Then we had the SFAB with the, uh, with the Atropian side. So there was a great moment where the division had made the decision to uh, commit uh, four Apaches to support the Atropian forces under certain, if the Denovians attacked with a certain uh, number of, uh, of, of enemy tanks. The SFAB commander had made that commitment to the Atropian commander uh, on the ground. He said, if this happens, you're going to get four Apaches from uh, the 3rd Infantry Division. And sure enough, the attack came. The Atropian commander turns to his SFAB partner, his American partner, and says, all right, I need my four Apaches. Uh, and for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, there was an issue with the fuel. Uh, there was a truck that broke down. Uh, there was a, a fuel testing system that had failed, and we were not able to deliver those Apaches on time. Now, that's the kind of thing that happens all the time at the National Training Center. It's just the friction of battle, and some great soldiers got training about the process for making sure we can provide reliable fuel to our Apaches. I'm not criticizing anyone there, but it showed the impact of that, the real-life friction when we really have to deliver these capabilities to a partner. And you just can't replicate that in a constructive environment. So again, NTC does not aspire at all to become a live warfighter. But we think that there's an opportunity to get after a very important set of muscle groups that must be trained in a live environment and can only be trained in a live environment. And we think we saw a little bit of that uh, with 3rd Infantry Division. We got some great feedback from uh, Major General Costanza and his team throughout the rotation. There's a lot of things we learned and we're gonna continue to grow and I think we're gonna see a much more robust scenario uh, that uh, that really gets after uh, those uh, training, uh, training objectives that can only be properly exercised in a live environment. I mean, you, you just captured the difference between the theoretical and the practical, right, sir? Because we, we've been talking about that, and to their credit, MCTP's been talking to us about it as well, right? Um, but things in simulation, uh, you almost owe the training unit uh, a list of the things that the simulation took care of for you, whether it's the tactical comms, whether it's the automatic resupply of things, whether it's the fact that, you know, one vehicle breaking down on the AVLB is not going to stop the rest of the unit from going into the, through the obstacle. And, and all of those kinds of things, people don't, you know, electrons and electronic units don't get tired. Um, they don't make mistakes. They always do their actions on contact. All of those kinds of things. Uh, and there was a time period where we were actually given that, that list. Well, you don't have to give a list like that to a unit that, tra tra that trains there because it's, it, it's obvious you're dealing with that fog and friction, as you said. I just think that that's, uh, that's something we would benefit from. Even small things like large unit movements, just the movement of multiple brigades under the control of a division. I mean, it's been a pretty long time since we did that routinely in our army and i know some of the divisions have been getting after that general mcgee did in under first and so forth but uh that that's all room for growth yeah we see that fog and friction at, at the national training center every day uh, and what we see is how small effects and small training competencies or failure to achieve training competencies in very small units can have outsized effects one thing we saw during the the rotation we did with the division 
uh, was we, as we typically do, we did an out-of-contact attack where the attack aviation had to go and attack some deep targets that were important to the division commander's concept of the operation. They were, they were rehearsed and developed during the targeting meeting, but the difference is we're now doing them live. And so we had created a, an environment using th some of the open desert we have where the pilots had to fly about 75 additional kilometers before they moved into China Lake where they flew against some of the most sophisticated air defense systems in the world. And so they really had to get low and slow to use the terrain so they wouldn't be detected by these sophisticated systems. Now we're doing this live. Now you have exhausted pilots who've been flying for several hours who are now flying you know, very low, very slow, trying to use the terrain. And you start to see the mental exhaustion and the, uh, the real human factors that come into play. And what I learned out of that, I had the privilege of flying behind the Apache formation as it went in the, on the attack out of contact. It's just how different the terrain, how important the terrain is to the risk profile for any particular attack. There are ways in which you can employ an attack, uh, attack aviation formation to be very effective in an attack out of contact if the terrain supports it and supports that maneuver. There are other times when it could be a near suicide mission. And, and really, when you, when you operate it purely in a constructive environment, you don't see those nuances and you don't see what you're asking these young men and women to do uh, in these aircraft. Uh, and that was a great example of the value of, of conducting live training as a part of and, and really as a finishing school after you conduct these robust warfighter exercises. One thing that you talked about, General Taylor, was the convergence windows is something that you're applying to the BCT. Now, I've heard senior leaders describe the division and core fighting as what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. So this convergence window concept kind of um, makes me think about that. So gentlemen, for both of you, what does that mean to you? What's yours is mine and what's mine is mine in this division level fight? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that, sir, because I think we were at uh, ASEPC when we had that conversation, I think with one of the senior mentors or maybe it was somewhere else, but um, that stems from uh, a recognition that we were kind of going back to the future a little bit uh, and that we had some pretty deeply ingrained cultural norms in terms of how we looked at battalions and brigades once we converted to a modular army. So the modular army was about fixed um, unit tables of organization for our brigade combat teams and the battalions within them. Uh, and what that did unintentionally, it was not an intentional act, was to kind of degrade the mindset about task organizing to purpose uh, because the types of operations we were doing were relatively fixed for a relatively long, you know, a decade or more in various places. So you didn't routinely change task organization to purpose, say, during phases of an operation as we did before. The other thing it unintentionally did was early on, say, 2016, 2017, uh, you had division commanders that were saying to themselves, well, I don't control everything. All of my combat power is, is in the brigade combat teams, so I can assign um, certain priorities. I can assign objectives and so forth, but I really can't wait the main efforts and do those kinds of things. Well, there was nothing in doctrine that kept people from doing that. It was just a mindset that because that was the norm and the way we looked at this. So we weren't looking at divisions and corps as anything other than static headquarters. We, we weren't thinking of them as formations. And, and if you think about them as formations, then everything that's in the Corps belongs to the Corps commander. Everything in the division belongs to the division commander, which means they can reorganize their forces, task organize them to purpose to create some sort of asymmetric advantage at a point and place on the ground. Um, and so the shorthand for that was the division commander talks to the brigades, you know, what's yours is yours and what's yours is mine. In other words, all of your stuff belongs to me. And the division commanders have that same conversation with the core commanders. Uh, and then once everybody understands that is the way it works, then there's a lot less emotional uh, angst when somebody says, hey, this BCT's given up its DS, direct support uh, artillery battalion, for this phase of the operation because we need to position it. You know, we don't keep artillery in reserve. So if it's the following soon brigade, then that artillery's moving up with the, the main effort brigade. And there's all kinds of other examples where that would be. So that's, I think, where that came from. And I don't know if you've seen that uh, in, in, in the dirt, sir, but... Well, what we have seen in the dirt is that 20 years of fighting with 
organic combined arms and modular formations has created a generation of combined arms warriors and folks who from day one have developed and built relationships and learned to understand the value of combined arms. When I served as a young lieutenant in tank battalion, I can remember that the every officer in the battalion was from one branch, my branch. Um, and so you see a, a, a modern combined arms battalion and you have a wide diversity of branches, of course, much more at the brigade level. So the great benefit of the modular period is that we've, we've developed a a combined arms mindset that's baked into our, our officer corps because of the career progression of, of officers who have led formations of various types and have served with, with fellow officers of uh, various branches throughout their career as opposed to operating in kind of uh, branch pure formations. And that's a very important capability that we absolutely uh, need to continue to protect. But compared against that is we now have the reality of the division close fight and the division commander must have the resources and must be enabled to create a division close fight and that means in order to execute that he has to work the exquisite timing of bcts in a synchronized operation for example a gap crossing requires the the, the very fine-tuned synchronization of brigade combat teams and then as you said he's got to be able to wait the main effort and so we have to have the agility in our organization to be organized as we fight but yet to, to offer to our division uh, commanders, particularly as the principal warfighting formation, the ability to retask organize that fight for the purpose of the specific operation that they are about to undertake. I want to shift a little bit back to history. In the 1970s, leaders pushed for the National Training Center concept because they saw that units would need more space for the technology and platforms being developed. Home station training areas were no longer big enough. To give listeners context, a division of 27,000 soldiers in World War I fought a front of two to six kilometers. In the mid-1970s, a division had 40% fewer soldiers and would fight across a 60-kilometer sector. General Taylor, with the size of the training area being so important, how do you see future training at the NTC with increased ranges of weapon systems, the need for greater dispersion, and the appetite for large division formations to train there? This is a great question. And this is one of the great advantages of the National Training Center. Because we operate in the middle of a remote and isolated location, we have the ability to expand, we have the ability to operate at distance that you can't do in many other locations. We're currently investing in uh, and have completed the purchase of 110,000 additional acres, what we call the Western Training Area, uh, that will expand our ability uh, even beyond the 12,000 square, uh, sorry, 1,200 square miles that we currently have at the NTC. So the Western Training Area gives us the ability now to operate at realistic distances for our course of uh, our CSSBs and DSSBs, uh, for us to place, for example, a division rear CP. An aviation TAA, one of the things we've seen in the Ukraine is the aviation TAAs have moved way back from the front lines so that they can be out of long-range precision fires uh, distances. Uh, and that additional land allows us to do that. So we're excited to see uh, that continued expansion. So uh, Major General Gorman, who many attribute to really, uh, it might be uh, too much to call him the founder of the NTC, but certainly the guy who wrote the first paper saying we need to build a national training center at Fort Irwin, California. And, and as they were making that argument back in the, in the late 70s, his point and his quote that I think is very relevant today is he said, the fundamental military problems of the day are one of space and, and time. And so if we can replicate the problem of distance and the problem of time in the tactical environment, whether or not we do it in a forest or we do it in a desert or we do it in a, in a littoral environment, is really of less significance than the fact that we can replicate distance. And that's why Fort Irwin is so important, because it gives us the opportunity to replicate those kinds of distances. And you don't have to be, uh, to, to be too invested in our, our current war planning in, in uh, either one of those theaters to recognize that the kinds of distances that we're able to replicate at the National Training Center are very relevant to the kinds of conflicts we can find ourselves in in Europe and the Pacific. Well, I'll tell you, just as a 
as a longtime fan, sometime user, and then haven't been to all three of the CTCs like you have throughout your career, sir, there is no diff- there is no comparison between um, in terms of distance and, and scale and scope uh, between any of the uh, other CTCs. They're all unique. They all allow you to do certain things in those places that you can't do in, in the others. But um, that was the thing that, that really would come home during a rotation. And, I mean, you commanded a brigade there, so I don't need to tell you. But that sense that you would have if you climbed into a track, you conducted offensive operations for 12 or 14 hours, and you would get out of the track. It was like being beamed down from the Starship Enterprise. I mean, you would get out, and you're looking around like, I knew where I am on the map, but I've never even been here on the ground before, which I think is a very realistic um, sense because when you are doing real-world operations in a place you've never been before, every time you stop is going to be someplace you've never been before. And I always found that to be one of the unique psychological aspects of going through a rotation there. Yeah, and just to drive home the point about distance, so we just completed, as I said earlier, the Bulldog Brigade's rotation, 3rd Brigade 1 AD, just last week. And we conducted at the request of the division commander what we call a west-to-east design, so the brigade moved all the way from its initial uh, tactical staging area all the way out to the west and then spent the course of the force-on-force attacking through the central quarter, ultimately ending near our eastern gate. That distance is, uh, is quite significant. And so if you think about the, the final objective was a town called Barisou. And there was a, a tank uh, that had entered the town of Barisou uh, uh, towards the end of the fight. That tank got its fuel from a logistics tail that went all the way back to the west and all the way around back to the TAA, a distance of about 150 kilometers. And if you think about the, uh, the amount of uh, sustainment operations that had to happen to keep the fuel in that particular tank. Um, it, it's quite an amazing process. And coincidentally, uh, that is roughly the distance from the Belarusian border to the city of Kiev. And we know how much the Russians struggled to sustain their operational capacity and to sustain the, the movement of their commodities forward during the initial opening days of the, uh, their invasion into the Ukraine. And so our ability to replicate the tactical environment in every kilometer of that 150-kilometer movement uh, was fully competitive uh, with soldiers operating under miles and an insurgent force that was operating in the rear area. And and as they moved closer to the front lines, an artillery force that was looking to target, uh, you know, concentrations of vehicles. Uh, So all of that was done competitively. And that's just hard to replicate anywhere else. There's nowhere else, certainly in the United States, uh, where we could trade at those kinds of distances and replicate the kind of sustainment challenges that come as we push armored formations uh, well over 100 kilometers of distance. Uh, and they did it fairly well. Um, and, but uh, there was a whole lot of learning in how, how we maintain the Army's velocity management system uh, with uh, particularly commodities like fuel as we attack over those kinds of distances. I want to look back at the history of the NTC just one more time. At the heart of the NTC concept was the need to objectively evaluate units according to the RTEP, the Army Training and Evaluation Program, which was published in 1975. We could talk the evolution of the OCTs and the important role they play in evaluations, but I want to talk more about the instrumentation system. Most people probably immediately think of wearing miles or putting miles on tanks, vehicles, aircraft, but the instrumentation system is so much more than these individual systems. Leaders in the 1970s wanted a complex system that collected, analyzed, and integrated data from the battlefield to the simulation center. General Taylor, how is the NTC keeping up with this instrumentation system and leveraging data for evaluations during rotations? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of our most important initiatives that's going on in the NTC is we, in 1975, our MILE system was the envy of the world. It was sophisticated and it was the model uh, through which uh, that many nations tried to replicate and they did over time Uh, and many of them have uh, their capability has grown and now it's time for our mile system to continue to upgrade to keep pace and there's a great effort uh, going on there with PEO Stry and uh, with our uh, our STI uh, live capability that is continuing to evolve. I think as we spiral out some of these new initiatives Uh, We're going to see improvements in our ability to replicate explosive munitions. That's been very difficult. And so we see some negative negative aspects of training at the National Training Center because it's 
it's very difficult to deal with, for example, a sniper in a building. Uh, we know we've got some high explosive capability that would deal with that very, very quickly, um, but that's just hard to replicate at the NTC. Grenades um, is another one. Uh, JRTC is really working on that, the use of the Mark 19. And so we're continuing to evolve our miles system uh, to keep pace uh, and make sure we, we offer the most realistic uh, training environment. We're doing the same with air defense. We're uh, going to be fielded with uh, some uh, signal emitters that enables able us to more accurately replicate the kind of emerging radar detection systems uh, that we're concerned about in the future so that our pilots will operate. What I want them to do is operate in the same very realistic threat environment uh, that they see at China Lake to have that same uh, environment presented for them when they're in force on force uh, in the actual box. And so that evolution is, is ongoing uh, and is encouraging. Uh, you talked about the, uh, the instrumentation. We continue to evolve uh, that information, the, uh, the amount of information that our instrumentation system can collect, and then our ability to organize that data lake into, co into a coherent body of data that then is susceptible to uh, big data analysis and even artificial intelligence analysis. And we've been working with the AI task force on how we can do that more effectively. You can imagine that the body of all of our former battles that we fought here at the NTC is pretty valuable from a big data analysis standpoint. So we're working with uh, the AI task force uh, to, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, the Artificial Intelligence Integration Center, recently renamed. Uh, to uh, more accurately replicate that. The Secretary of the Army has asked us to create a data-centric uh, army, and we sit on a massive data lake. And so we've been working with AMC to better track uh, and understand the kind of uh, maintenance challenges we have at the, at the National Training Center. What's the mean time to failure on particular systems? We're looking for causation uh, much more effectively. How do we uh, establish what type, types of metrics in, in the behavior of a, of a unit's ma maintenance program most directly correlate with a high ability to deliver combat power. We think there's, that's the kind of problem that is very susceptible to effective data management. We now have installed digital source collectors on all of our prepo vehicles, and they conduct advanced diagnostics on the vehicles that are drawn and turned in by the brigade during the rotation so we can better understand uh, the kind of maintenance challenges that are common uh, at the National Training Center. So that's how we're leveraging data to become much more sophisticated. We do see the opportunity to continue to evolve our AARs, our after action review systems, so that they're much more uh, able to create uh, better visualization tools uh, that allow the unit to visualize what took place and, and where opportunities were either missed or exploited. Um, we, are, we just broke ground on a new simulation center. Uh, similar to what you might see as a mission training center at a typical home station. When completed, and that will take about two years to complete, when that facility is completed, not only will it house our leader training program, but it will also provide us a top-tier, highly capable training center that allows us to conduct constructive training exercises concurrent with the live exercise going on in the box. So we would see that as an opportunity for a division staff to come out uh, and serve as a high con uh, using a robust scenario that we create and they'll be fully tied in on their mission on their command and control systems to communicate with the BCT while it executes its a portion of that simulation in a live environment uh, we also see that as an opportunity to bring in adjacent unit brigades as part of their train up uh, to serve as a uh, an additional unit in the box that will coordinate with the BCT uh, and we can expand that beyond just BCT, so we're, we might have a Devardi or a uh, Combat Aviation Brigade operating uh, inside our mission training, uh, mission training center while we've got a BCT forward. So we're really excited about where we're going with this, uh, but data is, is going to be an important component of the future. It's the ammunition of the 21st century, uh, and the National Training Center generates just terabytes of data every year, and our job is better capturing that and making sure it's, it's uh, something that we can expose to some of our more advanced uh, data anal analytics so we can inform the Army about what's happening out there. Come a long way from the uh, the teams driving around with a, a civilian vehicle and a smoke generator on the back. <laughs> Absolutely. Smoke grenades. It's, that's pretty impressive, sir. So, General Taylor, just a little CAD AAR for us. What are the lessons learned in training that you can come back to us at CAD and say, hey, CAD, 
we were able to validate this doctrine or CAD, you got this wrong? Don't be kind, sir. Okay, that's a hard question because I have great respect for, for where we're going. And I think it was really important that FM30 came out when it did. And I believe it is driving fundamental change in the way we fight. I would say absolutely what we got right is that a brigade combat team is no longer a self-contained element of combat power, but fights within the context of a division and core fight. And its ability to maneuver is enabled by and is heavily dependent on the shaping and the convergence that is created to disrupt and disable those integrated air defense and fires networks that we know our, our adversaries are going to have. That's a really important insight, and the National Training Center must adopt to create that environment where BCTs no longer see themselves as self-contained uh, and independent operators, but understand that they are part of a division close fight and that their ability to maneuver is integrally linked and indispensably linked with the ability of their higher headquarters to disable uh, and disrupt those integrated threat networks. I would not dare to say that CAD got anything wrong, but I think as the commander of the National Training Center, it is important for me to continue to highlight just how important organic combined arms are and how important it is that we continue to build a, a tactical army that is that is built as it fights and continues to create a culture of combined arms from the day a soldier uh, signs into his first unit until they may have the privilege of commanding a battalion or brigade level formation, that they understand the combined arms and, and that we continue to create that, those organic relationships. What we see at the NTC is units that are cross-attached at, you know, at the LD generally struggle and are generally ineffective for the first few days. And there's many good reasons why we do this. We do this with aviation all the time. We know that aviation should not be, and there is no argument that would say aviation should be organic to a BCT. But yet we see in the opening days of any campaign at the National Training Center big struggles in our airspace and ground integration because those habitual relationships take time to form. The more we can preserve the organic nature of our combined arms fight, I think the more effective we will continue to be. But that must be balanced against the need for division commanders to be able to weight the fight appropriately. So it's a tough challenge, but as the commander of the NTC, I would not be um, doing my job if I didn't communicate just how important that organic combined arms remains to our formation and how we've got to preserve some of the goodness uh, that came out of building a modular formation that is built combined from day one. Hey, you and I talked about that over pizza and a beer one night, I think. Uh, and I think in the end, we agree with, with each other on that. So I'm wondering, um, one of the things we talk about in 3.0, and I just, again, based on your team's observations over the last few years, one of the things we hammer home is the criticality to combine arms outcomes of branch and military occupational specialty subject matter expertise. We, each, we have these specialties for a reason. And for a period of time, for a very good reason, we were all doing the same kinds of operations, and a lot of folks were not actually fundamentally focused on their, what their branch's core competency would be. I'll give you artillery engineers, for example. Then we were even tankers. We were all mounted infantrymen uh, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, at least most of the time. Um, and so that's created probably some holes in our swings in terms of practical experience, how many gunneries you have how much time you have in the turret of a Bradley or of a tank. I'm just wondering how you're seeing things develop in terms of a return to focus on the subject matter expertise that's critical for a good combined arms outcome. I think you're exactly right that we, there was some atrophy. Now, uh, we have turned, since about 2012, we've turned to a primary focus at the NTC on uh, large-scale combat operations. So, of course, our doctrine has evolved in that time. So we've really been focused on this fight for about 10 years. Um, and I think sometimes that's lost on folks. So it, it wasn't the, the ending of the war in Afghanistan that caused us to change. We had, we had changed back to a, large, a focus on large-scale uh, combat operations for about 10 years. So it's been developing. Um, what we see is uh, obviously a, a need to to continue to certify, and I, I use that term very, very specifically, to certify our leaders on those core competencies. And so uh, I really encourage uh, you know, a, 
units to take seriously their home station training as an opportunity to certify leaders at various echelons on these these really important uh, expertise uh, areas of expertise like uh, the you know, artillery um, and delivering um, uh, being able to deliver effective fires at the platoon battery and and, and the battalion level so the the continued adherence to rigorous uh, I know that the term gated uh, training strategy has gone out of fashion a bit uh, but deliberate tables of qualification are important and that extends beyond just direct fire uh, you know our, our military intelligence tables are very very valuable uh, uh, training circular 6.02 outlines uh, a gated training strategy or a table-based training strategy for building a command post that's a very effective rubric for any unit that's considering training up an effective battalion or brigade level command post. And so I think those kinds of disciplines are important and we've got to continue to create those certification events at home station uh, so that we're building that fundamental expertise that's essential to bringing the full, uh, uh, bringing the full orchestra together. We've got to, got to build expertise in our instruments at home station and then we bring that orchestra together at the National Training Center. But I will tell you those relationships have to be built before you get to the NTC. Because if the first time you talk combined arms is at the NTC, it's, it's going to be like a sixth grade orchestra. Everybody's playing their instrument, but nobody's making any music. And so being able to build that through habitual relationships um, and, and where possible, where feasible, organic relationships, they create a consistent team that, that is organized as it fights, I think is where we can be the most effective. Yeah, I appreciate that, sir. I guess to not let you off the hook completely, so uh, in terms of feedback, and I think it's going to take some number of years for the force to, to have strong opinions on different things. First of all, everybody's got to read the, the doctrine first and then have a, see how it applies in their echelon or in their position of responsibility. But we think that the, the tenets, in other words, the attributes of the operations we want to conduct, which means the attributes of our units themselves, I think are hugely important to, to make sure we're, we're shining a spotlight on that. You know, do we have those about right? Is our thinking straight? But then probably more importantly for those tactical formations are, are the, uh, the imperatives. Right? We haven't had imperatives in doctrine since the 86, which coincidentally, 86-30 is the last one that was focused entirely on these types of, of fights against big threats. So... Uh, have you gotten any feedback whatsoever? Are there anything about the imperators? Are there too many? They're not clear. You think we're missing any? And I guess most of all, I'd ask if there's something we're missing. You know, what do you think the mechanism ought to be for telling us? We we have found that the imperatives is the most useful teach tool that we have from FN3O. So we talk about FN3O at the National Training Center. We include it as part of our our AAR process. Uh, but that simple list of imperatives that you have in, in fm 30 provides a great framework for any AAR. And I've, I've, I've told all our 07s, hey, you just throw the, that up on the screen and you say, how do we do on each one of these? And, and you, you can generate a one-hour discussion on that. The one that I think is particularly relevant, as we've already t talked about, is, is the assumption that you're under continuous observation. Uh, that is a very, very important change in the way we think. Uh, and, it, and it ties into so much that we're trying to do as we replicate the transparent battlefield at the National Training Center. So I believe that, that uh, that's a great imperative. I thought it was, I found it to be very, very helpful. And I think more broadly, uh, the imperatives that, uh, laid out in FM3O really answer the mail on the kinds of things that we need to be talking about with units uh, as they uh, attempt to apply that doctrine at, at the NTC. Do we need more? Do we need less? I think we need to give that a couple more years to really understand before we, we we're jump to any conclusions about where we need to adapt. I do want to highlight one doctrine change that I think is important, uh, and that is the addition of the tenant of competence into our mission command doctrine. That has been very important at the NTC. We conduct a mission command seminar during LTP where I meet with all the battalion commanders and we talk about leadership at the in combat. Um, we have a great discussion about that. What does mission command really mean as the philosophy of command and control? We talk about the tenets of mission command. And then we come back after the rotation. 
we meet in the same room four months later, typically, after the rotation's over, and I walk them through a vignette from the rotation that applies to each one of those tenants. And as I've done this about uh, 10 or 12 times now uh, with, with various units, what I've seen is that there was a misunderstanding of mission command uh, founded on a, a concept of mutual trust where, where trust was perceived as an inherent right, that good soldiers ought to be trusted. Um, and, and I think that's a fundamentally flawed idea. And we see that all the time at the National Training Center. The Army trusts me to do many, many things. The Army does not trust me to fly a helicopter, for example. Right. And nor should the Army trust me to fly <laughs> a helicopter because I have not been certified to fly a helicopter. And so as, as we talk about that in our Mission Command uh, seminar initially, it's, we say, okay, where do you believe you need to power down to your subordinates and, and trust them, and you, you need to have that mutual trust. And once you identify those areas, that's where you got to certify them because those are the things that you need to be able to uh, empower. And if you don't certify your subordinates, you can't empower them and you can't trust them. And then we walk back to after the rotation is done and say, okay, was there anything at home station that you could have done which would have enabled you to empower your subordinate and to trust that they would deliver the results you're looking for? Not as it's not an indictment on an individual that they have a competency that you thought was important for which you failed to certify them. Um, it is your responsibility as a leader to certify them. And I think the introduction of the word competence into our mission command doctrine has been absolutely important in driving that point home uh, because it's incumbent on the leader to identify those elements where trust will be absolutely essential in the relationship. For example, uh, I need to understand and have a clear relationship with that young lieutenant I've appointed to be my scout platoon leader that he understands what I mean when I say you will gain observation of a particular NAI and you will report uh, whether the enemy, you have confirmed enemy presence, denied uh, that enemy presence is there, or, uh, or you don't know. And that conversation, I need to certify and empower you because the imperatives of the battlefield require that you're going to operate in a very decentralized environment. I'm going to have very little control over how you act uh, in the pursuit of that objective, so I must certify you ahead of time. That's a great example where competence is an essential prerequisite of mission command. So I want to highlight that I think that's a very important change that we see as yielding positive benefit at the NTC. We'll probably start bringing that, uh, that logic chart from ADP-6 back into some of our other educational venues and maybe even make it part of the 3-0 pitch because walking people through the logic of, the, we call them the principles of mission command. So mission commands are our approach to command and control. Competence is first for a reason. Because without competence, you don't have shared understanding. Without shared understanding, you don't have mutual trust. You can't do mission-type orders, right? And then how do you define what discipline initiative are if you don't have all of those other things? So they all build upon each other, and we think that's an accurate reflection of how human beings actually interact. Absolutely. And it's, it's not a – leadership's not a cult, and it's not a heroic model where one person is making everything happen. It's, it's the non-commissioned officer corps. It's our staffs. It's commanders. It's everybody. So – uh, I appreciate that plug, sir, because uh, I think that just gave us some ammunition for maybe re-attacking that more commonly in our engagements. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Do you have any parting thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, I want to encourage anyone who is interested in becoming an absolute expert at their profession, an absolute expert in the very, very hard business of combining arms in the close fight to consider an assignment to the National Training Center. I can tell you as a, as a young captain, um, I, uh, I aspired to do other things. I had a, brigade, a great brigade commander and mentor who said, look, if you want to command a battalion, you need to go to the National Training Center. Um, I thought it was advice. It turned out to be guidance, and I ended up at the NTC as a young captain. I fell in love with the place, absolutely loved our time there. My family loved it. Uh, we had young children at the time. They really enjoyed uh, the small community aspect of Fort Irwin. But more importantly, I learned how to fight. And I had no idea that that conversation took place on the eve of the longest war in American history. And that within, uh, within a year of serving as an OC at the National Training Center, I'd be sitting in Iraq as a brand new S3 trying to figure out uh, how to conduct a complex counterinsurgency operation. So we don't know what the future brings. But what we do know is there is an imperative for our junior and mid-grade officers and our non-commissioned officers to become experts at combined arms warfare um, because 
whatever uh, lies in our future, that skill will be absolutely essential in the first battle of the next war. So I would strongly encourage uh, any officer or NCO who wants to become an expert to consider the National Training Center. It's a great family environment. It, it is a isolated and remote location, but in that um, isolation is a small town community that you will find nowhere else inside the Army uh, and a shared purpose and a common vision um, that I think it makes it one of the best assignments of any soldier's military career. So uh, I love it out there. Uh, I love what we've been able to accomplish. We are moving to adapt to the changing character of warfare, uh, and our intent is to continue to lead the way uh, with JRTC uh, partnering with us. In many ways, they're, they're ahead of us in some areas, and we're ahead with them in others. But as we work together to continue to evolve our training environment to replicate the first battle of the next war. You know, I just use that as a segue to say, you know, all of those people that, that go and, and become those subject matter experts at our training centers and, and other places, if they have a passion for the ideas and language of our profession, uh, we strongly invite you, because it's a voluntary process, to be involved in the development of our doctrine because it's a, it's a reflection of the quality of the people that contribute to it. Um, so those audiences overlap significantly. Uh, and I really want to appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to sit down with us here today, sir, and talk about this. It's been a long time since we got a reboot on everything going on at the National Training Center, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do this with all the, our combat training centers because they're all national treasures in their own way. Just like writing new doctrine is a team effort, breaking doctrine takes a team. Without the crew and special doctrine division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain Wyatt Harper. Please don't forget to subscribe to Google, Apple, or Spotify podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates on new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and publications. In preparation for this podcast, I tapped into the resources at the Combined Arms Research Library, CARL, and found the TRADOC Historical Monograph Series. Special thanks to Ann Chapman, who wrote The Origins and Development of the National Training Center, 1976-1984. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major Lisa Becker, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.